Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on two topics, violent crime and the poor side of town. Our first speaker is Barry Latzer, who is Professor Emeritus at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at CUNY, City University of New York. Barry is an expert in the history of crime, and he has recently released his newest book entitled The Roots of Violent Crime in America from the Gilded Age Through the Great Depression. I want to find out why certain ethnic minorities commit more violence. What is the role of socioeconomics in crime rates? Why have there been huge increases in crime since COVID? What happens when you defund the police? And should we police lesser crimes that disturb the peace like urinating in the streets? And are prisons filled with people convicted of drug possession? These are the questions I want to find out with Barry. Our second speaker will be Howard Hasek, who is a senior fellow at AEI. Howard will discuss his new book, The Poor Side of Town, and why we need it. Howard argues that housing for the poor delivered by the private sector is superior, like in the old days, when the landlord lived on the floor below. Public housing has failed, so let's figure out a workable solution. Each month since the beginning of COVID, I evaluate the monthly employment report because it's the most important global economic statistic to help us determine the strength of the economic rebound. This month was another interesting release. Here's what you need to know. The headline number of employment growth from the establishment survey was 431,000, and there were positive revisions for the previous two months for an additional 100,000 jobs. In the first quarter of 2022, the average employment growth was just over 550,000 per month, which was nearly identical to the monthly average for the year 2021. This means that the economy is adding jobs at a very fast rate and a very consistent one. The U.S. unemployment rate fell by 0.2% to 3.6%, with 6 million people looking for work. These numbers are virtually identical to February 2020 before COVID. The total number of workers is still down 1.6 million than pre-COVID, but at the current rate of growth, this will resolve in just three months. Hospitality and leisure are lower by 1.5 million jobs, which basically explains the entire job loss in the economy. Now, there's enormous pent-up demand for travel and entertainment, so we should expect this sector to hire workers at a very fast clip. As an example, this sector was responsible for 25% of all new hires last month. Average hour earnings were up 5.6% versus a year ago. This story is potentially problematic because on the positive, it shows robust demand for labor, but on the negative, it is that it's inflationary and will force the Fed to raise interest rates. There continues to be a steady decline in teleworking for any portion of your job during the week. In January, 16% teleworked for a part of the day. In February, it was 13%, and in March, it was only 10%, as Omicron has faded and people are getting back into the office in force. Now, there is substantial business uncertainty caused by the war in Ukraine, higher oil prices, and the like, but this did not slow down the U.S. job market. It continues to hum. I have some good news to report. My What Happens Next intern, Carly Braille, got accepted to Harvard this week, and she is beyond pleased. Carly has been an incredible intern, reading two books a week to determine who should be speaking on this program. She is terrific, and I'm sure she'll make a fabulous contribution to her new university. You can find transcripts for this program and all our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right, let's begin with our first speaker, Barry Latzer. 
I'm Barry Latzer. I'm here to discuss the causes of crime. Criminologists blame everything on socioeconomic adversities. Poverty, of course, residential segregation, female-headed households, high unemployment, and socially isolated large-scale communities. These factors are relevant. So is gender relevant. Males do 10 times the violent crime of females. Young males past 18 and before 40 do the bulk of violent crimes. If we only look at the last five years at most, which is what criminologists do, then we might get a misleading picture. Criminologists need history, and that's what I do in my research and writing. So when we look at the history of crime, what we see is that various groups that immigrated to the United States or migrated within the United States had very different violent crime rates, some extremely high, some quite low. And these differences actually had very little to do with social, socioeconomic adversities. They were all poor, had residential segregation, high unemployment, socially isolated communities. From the late 19th century and into the 21st, some social groups had much higher violent crime rates than others, even though they were equally adversely situated. And that's the key to this. The Jews, the Japanese, the Germans, the Scandinavians that immigrated here all had low violent crime rates. By contrast, the Irish, the Italians, the Mexicans, and believe it or not, the Chinese, at least in the late 19th and early 20th century, all had high violent crime rates. And most importantly for today's discussion, white Southerners and especially black Southerners who migrated within the United States from the South to the big cities of the North, they had extremely high violent crime rates. So what's going on here? These social groups have subcultures who engage in a violent crime in response to what are perceived of as slights, insults. And it doesn't matter whether they're real, he's being offended, dissed, insulted. He's willing to resort to his gun and engage in violence. You looked at their girlfriend the wrong way, they will resort to violence. And it's interpersonal quarrel and conflict that causes the vast bulk of violent crime. I am talking about Rape, murder, manslaughter, and especially what they call aggravated assault, where you use a weapon and damage to the victim. Jews, Japanese, Germans, and, and Scandinavians, low violent crime rates. Even though they're in America, they have access to guns like everybody else. Criminologists need to take this subculture of violence explanation into account. And they don't want to because many people think it's racist, it's insulting to the group. 
But I would argue we're talking about a culture, not a race. The subculture of violence is influenced by cultural factors. That means the beliefs, the values, the behaviors of a group. It's not racial. You can take people who are black-skinned, put them in England, put them in Africa, put them in Haiti, and they're going to have very different beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. Race is not determinant. Culture is determinant. Therefore, it's not correct to say that subculture of violence theory is racist. It's not based on race. It's based on culture. Why is the common wisdom that economic conditions affect violence and crime rates? The general public believes that crime is motivated by a need to steal. When you're poor, maybe during the Great Depression that was true. The United States has become much more affluent. Nobody is literally starving to death. Violent crime is not motivated by these economic determinants. But violent crime, murder, rape, assault, that's motivated by interpersonal quarrels, not economics. Given that culture changes slowly, generation to generation, how do you explain the major cycles in violent behavior? That's excellent, Larry, because that shows the limitations of the cultural explanation. Let's take the big crime boom that started in the late 60s and ran to roughly the mid-1990s. Probably the biggest violent crime boom in American subcultures of violence don't change that rapidly, and therefore that couldn't possibly explain it. And it doesn't. So what does explain that crime boom? There are about three factors that do. First, demographics, the baby boom. Youth is certainly a key correlate of crime. The more youth you have, the more violent crime you're going to get. Simple as that. And so this explosion in the youth population was a key factor in the great crime boom. I call it the crime tsunami of the late 60s to mid-90s. Second factor, the criminal justice system had gone flabby. There was a big belief in rehabilitation in the early 60s and in the 50s. And we sort of let our guard down. Police didn't make as many arrests. Sentences were much lighter. So at the same time, the baby boom is increasing crime. You have this weakened criminal justice system that's punishing people more lightly, more leniently. Third big factor was a huge migration of African-Americans from the South to the cities of the North. And this occurred in different stages. It happened in the 1920s, the 1940s. It starts again in the 1960s. And this big migration of African-Americans to Northern cities was a big contributor to high violent crime rates, Remember, African-Americans were one of the groups with high subcultures of violence, and they brought that subculture with them from the South. Anyone who lived in a big city in the 70s knows this. I lived in New York. I know it. 
People in Philly, they knew it. Chicago, Boston, Detroit, certainly, absolutely Detroit. A sub-issue was the uh, cocaine epidemic, but that didn't start to the late 80s, and the crime wave was already well underway. By then, the system had toughened up, and the punishments were harsher, and that was the beginning of the end. That's my explanation, and the question is really perfect because it shows that even the subculture of violence theory cannot fully explain why crime rises and falls. How do you explain the explosion in crime rates since COVID? I think police were holding back. They were afraid to engage with suspected offenders. And the demonstrations with the George Floyd incident, the police were further diverted because there were so many protests and they were so massive that police normally assigned to deal with violent crime were assigned to protests. The police drew back. They weren't proactive the way they normally have been in the last few decades. They weren't pursuing suspects. What do you think of Giuliani's implementation of James Q. Wilson's broken window philosophy? I was never fully persuaded that broken windows worked. Disorder is important to quell. Low-level offenses must be pursued by the police and prosecutors. In fact, I just wrote a piece critiquing the new prosecutor in Manhattan for refusing to pursue these low-level offenses. Disorder matters. If you don't arrest people who are urinating in the streets, dealing drugs even at low levels, drinking and making noise all night long, If you don't pursue these low-level offenses, then what happens is you get disorderly communities. And disorderly communities do breed serious crime. I do agree with Wilson and Kelly. But it's not sufficient. High crime has to be dealt with on its own and not just disorder. High crime has to be dealt with strictly. And I don't mean that the sentences have to be lengthened, but the police have to do their job. They have to find these offenders, arrest them, and then they have to be processed and punished. That's the most important thing to do. Disorder is also important to get under control because it contributes to the decline of communities and the cities. I was in New York in the 1970s. I remember when you had disorderly behavior in New York. It keeps the law-abiding people fearful and reluctant to go in public spaces. That has a big ripple effect. People aren't going to go to the shows, restaurants, and movies. I'm not sure that arresting these low-level offenders, and by the way, they're not going to stay in jail very long for these crimes. I'm of mixed mind on it. I don't accept the theory that clamping down on disorderly behavior prevents felonies, but I think is important to do in its own right. People walking in the neighborhood reduces crime, but this disorder reduces walking traffic. I agree. They need to make sure that the public spaces are safe and then people will walk in those communities. And that does discourage crime. More law-abiding people in an area does mean fewer disorderly types. How do you explain the sharp differences 
in violent crime rates between Chicago, Detroit, and Baltimore versus New York City? There seems to be some contagion effect that takes place locally. Young people copy one another. They copy their fads, their misbehaviors. In some cities, when some young people begin engaging in crime and disorderly conduct, other young people copy them and do the same thing. And that seems to spread. That seems to me to be the the best explanation. And once that copying hits a tipping point, then it explodes and it seems to get out of control. The public learns about police work from television, shows like The Wire and Law and Order. Are these shows realistic? Not much, because police work is boring. If they portrayed all that boredom, you'd flip the channel to something else. Rarely are cases resolved with such finality as on television. It just doesn't happen that way in the real world. Most crimes go unsolved. Large numbers go unreported. Shooting, the overwhelming number of police never use their service revolvers on the job, except in the target practice. Television guys are shooting all the time, and they're perfect shots. That's unrealistic. So that's my beef with the dramatizations. It sort of misleads people about what's going on in the real world of policing. Our current approach to punishing criminals doesn't appear to work very well. How can we do a better job? My proposal for certain populations where there's high rates of recidivism, mainly people who were released to parole from prison, where to use electronic monitoring more to substitute for incarceration. It provides some monitoring of the offender, whereas under the current system, the overstretched parole officers can't monitor each and every prisoner. Technology could be the wave of the future, especially if we ever develop the technology to determine the behavior of the subject, not just the location. The current technology is like the GPS in your car. It can determine the location, but it can't really determine the behavior. Once we reach a point where we're technologically able to determine behavior, we'll see replacement of incarceration with high-tech electronic monitoring. So that's the future. People are very disenchanted with the prison system. We don't have a good replacement. Maybe it's technology. Rural Sicilians and rural Irish moved to urban New York City, Chicago, and Boston. Was the rural-to-urban shift important in this story of violent crime? When it comes to the subculture of violence, rurality is more of an influence than urbanity. Back in the 19th century, cities had less violent crime than rural areas. But when a rural group with a subculture of violence, take the African-American, moves to the big cities, I argue that they'll transport that subculture of violence with them. It's the same for that Sicilian population that we were talking about just a a minute ago. Rural areas do have high violent crime rates. In the first half of the 20th century, New York City had lower than average violent crime rates. The rest of the country was higher than New York City. Cities tame violent crime. At least that was the argument made 
in the 19th century. In the late 20th century, we assume it's just the uh, opposite, that rural areas have lower crime, violent crime rates. And they do. In fact, the pecking order is urban area highest, suburbs, rural areas lowest of all. How do you explain the sharp reduction in violent crime over time among the Irish, Italian, and Chinese Americans? Class trumps culture. When people move up the social ladder, when they become middle class, more affluent, they shed their violent crime culture. If you look at middle class African Americans, their crime rates are much lower than lower income African Americans. Affluence definitely reduces violence because you'd be out of your mind if you have a family, a decent job and a decent wage. You'd be crazy to hold up a liquor store. So affluent people are not going to engage in violent crime. They would be self-destructive. If you were put in charge, how would you change public policy? Woke prosecutors, as they're calling them. Policies are misguided. Disorder in cities is a disease. It ruins communities. Arrests have to happen. You simply can't look the other way and pretend this crime isn't occurring. And we see with the West Coast cities, Seattle, San Francisco especially, what happened when prosecutors didn't want to prosecute. We must attend to disorder, even though these are low-level offenses. The punishments here do not contribute very much to mass incarceration because they're very light punishments. These are people who get a couple of months in a jail and don't ever see a prison. We have to stay the course when dealing with more serious offenses. We have to use our police wisely. We have to do hotspot policing. These interventions with gangs might work and intercept the firearms. Defunding the police, that's just an utter disaster. My formula is more of the same. I don't have any panaceas. However, electronic monitoring and technology can be very beneficial for the criminal justice system, and we should pursue that progressively. Is it true that prisons are filled with low-level drug users and not violent criminals? 55% violent crime. The numbers for drug offenders is 14%. Of the 14%, 10% or so are drug dealers. They're people who were selling. They were in the business. So only a small percent, 4% or less, are drug possessors. That is, they weren't selling. However, even that number is high because many of these drug possession cases are simply cases that had problems and had to be pled down to drug possession. The police make an illegal seizure of the drugs and they can't convict them of drug sales, they'll take the conviction for drug possession. The assertion that the prisons are filled with low-level offenders, mainly drug offenders, is false. Michelle Alexander, who made this argument back in the day, you know, New Jim Crow, I just explode those arguments in my next book. They're totally false. The people in prisons are there because they've done very serious offenses over and over again. The argument that you have some kid smoking dope and he goes to prison, not true. 
Do you expect to see a sharp drop in violent crime among the African-American community in the decades ahead? Not in my lifetime, perhaps, but decades and decades from now, black violent crime is going to be a historical phenomenon only. Who talks about Irish violent crime today, Larry? or Italian violent crime, for that matter, except for a few mafia movies that perpetuate the stereotypes, right? And it's going to be the same way for African-Americans. I feel very optimistic on that score. You mentioned that there are subcultures that are easily angered and resort to violence. Can we educate to dissuade them that this violent response is problematic? Anger management training kind of thing? <laughs> You'd have to do it at a at such a mass level that it, it, it wouldn't be workable. It's a long, slow process. But the best thing that could happen is affluence. Affluence seems to do the trick. They move up the social ladder, they eschew violence, and the culture changes. That's the end of that subculture of violence. I don't think you could do it through education alone. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Barry, what are you optimistic about as it relates to violent crime? Well, we have a huge gun problem, and I'm not so optimistic about that. The NRA would say guns don't kill people, people kill people, and there's a truth to that. I'm optimistic about African-American moving to the middle class and eschewing violence I think America, it sounds almost corny nowadays, but it is still a land of opportunity as long as our economy expands and as long as we don't discriminate against these groups, they will have opportunities. And probably in my lifetime, I'm an old man already, but it will happen. It took three generations with the Irish and the Italians. Thanks, Barry. Our next speaker is Howard Husak, who is a senior fellow at AEI. Howard has a new book out entitled The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It. Howard, go ahead. My book is about the history and future of affordable housing. There was a time when we had affordable housing, and it didn't involve federal or state programs. We once knew how to build homes for millions of Americans at a cost they could afford in neighborhoods that had a lot of value and a good quality of life. A few examples in Philadelphia between 1870 and 1920, a staggering 299,000 small row homes were built. Chicago had thousands of two flats. In 1940, it had 382,000 housing units in two, three, and four-unit homes, more than all its single-family houses. Oakland, California, had bungalows, 12,000, built in just three years between 1921 and 1924. We once had the formula for low-income housing, affordable housing, which served as the foundation for healthy communities. Bronzeville in Chicago, Black Bottom in Detroit, from Dorchester in Boston, East Harlem in New York, there were poor neighborhoods, good neighborhoods, with landlords who lived in the same buildings as their tenants, with small shops, churches and synagogues nearby, and the mutual aid institutions that characterize healthy communities. We chose to demolish what were labeled slums that drove me to write my book, the poor side of town and why we need it. I lay the blame on a movement that began with Jacob Rees, very celebrated author of a book, How the Other Half Lives, about 19th century New York, housing tenements on the Lower East Side. 
a movement that he sparked and continues blindly today, housing reform, a movement predicated on the idea that the private market fails the poor and must be replaced by something involving government. Reese was a pioneer photographer who was New York's leading police reporter. He was, in other words, trained as a sensationalist, and his approach to housing was aimed at images that shocked. There was more to the slums than abject poverty. Hundreds of thousands of families lived normal lives. They worked, paid rent, fed their children, had hopes and dreams for the future. And crucially, poverty was not a life sentence. Reese set off a stampede of misguided reform. He germinated the idea of public housing as championed by two New York women, Edith Abbott Wood of Columbia University and Catherine Bauer, both believed that the private housing market would fail to provide for the needs of the population. Both would join the Roosevelt administration, and Bauer would write the National Housing Act in 1937 for federally financed public housing. That act would become the vehicle for slum clearance. Neighborhoods replete with small landlords, with families taking in lodgers, with single-room occupancy hotels. Small shops and community institutions were swept away and replaced by the projects, planned communities without city streets, stores, or businesses. The failure and widespread demolition of public housing. This is the 50th anniversary of the implosion of the 33 towers of the Pruitt-Igo housing project in St. Louis. None of that has stopped reformers for searching for a philosopher's stone of government-provided low-income housing. Today, we're told mixed-income housing is the way, ignoring a fundamental question. Why shouldn't poor neighborhoods also be good neighborhoods? They were in the past. We adopted draconian zoning laws, which mandate exclusively single-family districts, mandating larger and larger lots for such homes. This is a recipe for unaffordability. We need to relax zoning laws to permit two- and three-family homes, small shops and businesses on ground floors. We need to stop deciding for the poor where they should live based on some planner's vision of income-restricted housing. Government has distorted housing markets. It should get out of the business altogether. Jane Jacobs reminded us it's the spontaneous plans of thousands of builders and businesses that are much superior to the housing planners. We need all sides of town, a full spectrum of housing types, including a poor side of town. What are the societal benefits of tenants living in the same building as their landlord? Landlords are on the front lines of creating healthy neighborhoods because they screen their tenants. We're taking steps today to make it harder to screen tenants. That's a bad thing. You make too much noise, you're out. Landlords are enforcers of social norms. Tenants make demands on landlords. It's hard to have somebody downstairs with no heat because they're living right there. The Clinton administration banned felons from public housing. Was that a good idea? We have millions of people in prisons. We have to figure out some way to integrate these people into the broader society. We can't continue to isolate and marginalize them, have some common sense rule like you kept your nose clean for two years. Public housing's biggest problem is this. You cannot own anything there. It's all owned by the government. 
We all invest in our houses. We make it impossible for poor people to do it. African-Americans were particularly disadvantaged by this because they came to the northern cities at the same time public housing was sprouting. Herbert Gans wrote the book Urban Villagers on Boston's slum clearance. City planners knocked down an entire poor neighborhood. How should we evaluate a community and its institutions before we blow it up? Well, Gans wrote The Urban Village about the West End in Boston. I lived most of my life in Boston. Jane Jacobs celebrated the eyes on the street and the north end of Boston. Five-story walk-ups, cannoli shops on the ground floor, literally. The West End was the same thing. It had a certain problem, though. The North End was almost all Italian-American. The West End was diverse. Jews, Italians, Irish, blacks. So it lacked political power. And it got in the sights of the planners. And they had this mistaken idea that we have to bring the middle class back to the city. And we'll do it by getting rid of this slum and we'll subsidize by giving cheap land to build middle-class luxury units. 50 years later, these West Enders still have reunions because they had neighbors that they knew. They owned the buildings and rented out to extended family members. There were so many permutations available, shops on the ground floors. They supported that parish or the local synagogue. The terrible irony today is that those buildings that they tore down would be worth more than the high-rises that they replaced it with. They would be historic structures. Yuppies would be renovating them. Oh, my God. Tragedy of the planners. Jacob Reese, who took the photographs and published How the Other Half Lives, was memorialized with the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side of New York City. When I took a tour there recently, you could see across the street that these tenements were being renovated to sell for $3,000 a square foot. Density is back, and it trades at a premium. Why did we push people to move to less dense areas like Brooklyn and then eventually the suburbs? The Tenement Museum itself, they refer to it as the urban log cabin. I love this phrase. It's so meaningful to me. It's Abe Lincoln. It's the ground floor before you get to the next better neighborhood, as opposed to the life sentence and the system fails and capitalism stinks. High-density living. There's no doubt that if you make it impossible to run a rooming house because it's too dense, you won't have any rooming houses and you'll have homeless guys on the street, which we have here in New York now. Have to fight this battle community board by community board all across this country. We have to get the idea that dense housing areas are actually desirable. They have a high walkability index. The housing affordability formula is simple. As many units as you can have on the same amount of land, more units for the same square footage of land. One acre zoning, it's going to be an expensive house. Five 1,200 square foot houses on the same lot, it's not as expensive. Levittown, the ultimate post-war suburb, derided by the socialists as little boxes. The houses were 750 square feet. That's not a garage in a lot of places. And people were dying to move out of Brooklyn to get there. And they did. Jane Jacobs argues in her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, 
that as office buildings age, they go from class A to class B and then to class C. The type of tenants changes and the building's use does too. Is this process critical to urban vitality? She had a line, new ideas need old buildings. Unfortunately, elected officials try to hold back that tide. If your whole city is becoming C-class, your property tax base erodes, you really need to cut taxes so that people move in urban dynamism. That's what Jane Jacob is all about. Not only Death and Life of American Cities, but her magisterial book, The Economies of Cities, and then The Cities and the Wealth of Nations. All three need to be read. The first was a protest. The second explained how it should be done right and what happens in healthy cities. New ideas need old buildings. We have to accept that change. There are about 100,000 illegal basement apartments in Queens and Brooklyn today. Illegal. 100,000. You can't slap every landlord with a fine and kick out all those tenants. It's not practical. So what should you do? You should figure out, well, how can we change the housing code so it's safe enough rather than some higher standard that is unattainable? We need planning and zoning boards that embrace the advent of Class C from Class A and then facilitate the revitalization. Whole cities need to learn this lesson. Whole cities, the Buffaloes, the St. Louises, the Detroits, they all need to learn this lesson. Another Jane Jacobs idea was that one reason Greenwich Village works so well is because there are short blocks with small streets. If you're going from point A to point B across the village, there are dozens of street routes you can choose to make the trip. And the different routes open up the possibility for exploring many different small businesses. That's a zoning issue, you know. All these suburban subdivisions that we continue to build, they have designated street widths to accommodate automobiles. When more and more Americans want walkable neighborhoods, they also ban commercial enterprises altogether. They segregate the commercial, residential, and industrial. If you look at old urban neighborhoods, there would be a commercial bakery, but then the bakery also sold day-old goods on the ground floor, and next door was a clothing store, and guys lived upstairs. All of that is illegal in most cities today, but in the neighborhoods where it persisted, people are dying to move in there. We're mandating neighborhoods that people dislike. That is crazy. Le Corbusier, the super modernist architecture who was really the force behind public modernist housing, he believed that cities should not have any streets. Literally, he said that. Cities with no streets. And buildings should be placed towers in a park. That was his phrase. And anybody who's been on public housing knows that those campuses have become free fire zones where people are afraid to walk across with good reason. How long does it take for a new public housing project to turn into a catastrophe? All the public housing projects look nice when they cut the ribbons. It only took 20 years from Pruitt-Igo to go from winning architectural awards, literally, for Yamasaki, the architect, who also designed the World Trade Center, to it being imploded. Everybody should look up the pictures of Pruitt-Igo implosion. It's stunning to replace to this day by nothing, nothing, empty land. They radiate toxicity. 
There have been studies about crime, not only within public housing, but within a radius of public housing. See the wire. You reference Nathan Glazer in your book. Tell me why you appreciate his work. I was privileged to know Nathan Glazer, Harvard sociology professor, somebody who would never be on a university faculty today. I, I don't know if he had a PhD, maybe thinker, not a statistician when it comes to sociology. That's changed. One of his greatest books is called The Limits of Social Policy. And he says that any social program, by its nature, replaces some previous civil society arrangement, whether of the family, the church, and has to be judged against that. It replaces. And we have to be very careful and reluctant to do that. And when it comes to public housing, and Glazer himself was once a federal housing official, and then he turned against all that, he realized that institutions that were valuable and that social policy not only had limits, but it had inherent weakness. His great strength was he could look at 20 studies and crystallize it in very clear and fair-minded writing. When Brooklyn was settled 150 years ago, real estate developers would give land to build a church and then sell lots to parishioners in the immediate vicinity. Should we encourage mixed use like churches and other non-residential buildings next door to where people live? The important thing, as with so many aspects of zoning and planning, is not to preclude things. It's not just the market. It's private initiative. Let it take form. It wasn't just churches, by the way. All the guys who started amusement parks at the end of transit lines, they understood that they were increasing the value of the land around it. Symphony Hall in Boston or Carnegie Hall in New York, they were built so tightly into the urban fabric that developed music districts, music schools, sheet music sales places. So one thing leads to another if you don't make it impossible to happen. Contrast Carnegie Hall with Lincoln Center. <laughs> to build Lincoln Center, they had to knock down a dozen city blocks that had been the poor side of town. West side of West Side Story. Was replacing five-story walk-ups with a planned modernist cultural venue a good idea? You have that windswept open space there. Government Center in Boston, the same thing. All these open spaces, they're too big and ill-defined borders. I don't think it's held up well the grandness of the quasi-classical buildings like Carnegie Hall, Grand Central Terminal, are not matched by these modernist wannabes. It's not a terrible place, Lincoln Center. I'm not a fan. How do you explain the success of fast-growing southern cities like Houston, Atlanta, Charlotte, and Nashville? Houston, there's no zoning. The Texas cities permitting the housing market to respond to increased demand. There is a small homes movement, which is growing. Durham, North Carolina has it. Houston has it. You have closely adjacent townhouses where you can get a lot more homes on the same lot size. I hope they don't go in big for fixed rail transit. It's very expensive. You can have other transit options, Uber-style buses, maybe a surface trolley, but they shouldn't be building subway systems like Los Angeles. Some southern cities are struggling, like Memphis, Birmingham, and New Orleans. 
Why are these cities in trouble? Crime's a big factor. The core responsibility of local government is to protect its population. New Orleans is not doing that. Police cities, and if you don't do that, you're going to pay a price. My son lived on Clarksdale, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, birthplace of the blues. And he lived in a predominantly black side of town. And the police took him aside when he moved there and said, look, if you buy a TV or something, son, don't put the box out on the street. Somebody will steal it. How do people make investments if they think their investment is not protected? That has to do with the failure of some of the southern cities. Raj Chetty is a very esteemed economist at Stanford and Harvard. He wrote a widely cited paper that says that poor kids who move to wealthy suburbs and attend local public schools outperform poor kids that remain in poor neighborhoods. What do you think of his research? I've written criticizing his work. He ignores a number of things. First, just the practicality of it. How many people are you going to move to Scarsdale and Lake Forest? You're going to move the whole south side there and then everything will be better? Like, I don't follow. Number two, if you look closely at his data, boys 12 years and older didn't do as well. There's a certain sweet spot in the Ainge Ridge. Can you really have a federal program that says only families that fit this profile can take this opportunity? There's political impracticalities. And then third, why can't a poor neighborhood be a good neighborhood? The failure is not the people. This is a governmental public goods failure. If the schools are bad, then the schools have to be fixed. Maybe they have to be all charterized, maybe voucherize them all. But we have to fix the schools, not give up on making a poor neighborhood a better neighborhood. There's no practical alternative. We can't socially engineer poor people in America to live among upper middle class people. No can do. Core to the Raj Chetty idea is that the poor will adopt the social mores of the wealthy. Is that likely? And could the wealthy adopt some of the problematic mores of the poor? They're likely to remain in parallel universes. It's a theory that somehow these norms are going to rub off. The settlement house model, the boys and girls club model, the idea of preaching, the idea of investing in yourself, delayed gratification. I believe in middle-class norms. Middle-class people should dare to sell them, practice them ourselves, and preach them as well. It used to be that American elites had confidence in those norms to go to Hull House in Chicago and say, here's the right way to cook in a healthy way. You should really become a citizen. We'll help you learn English. Take music lessons. We'll offer them. The idea that they're going to kind of osmose in the air if you go to Scarsdale High School, I don't think so. You wrote an essay entitled The Life of a House, where you tell what happens to a resident's built in the Dorchester section of Boston that evolves over time as the neighborhood changes. Started off, a builder owner lived there with his extended family. Then it got sold to two Yankee New England school teachers. Then it got sold to a Swedish immigrant who subdivided it into smaller rooms and rented out the rooms. The neighborhood became more dangerous. There was a shooting And they ended up selling it to these crazy hippies who were willing to pioneer in this tough neighborhood. And over time, their investment paid off tremendously. 
It still has the rental units, and the family that's in there continues to rely on that income. The neighborhood is not nearly as bad as it had been. Individual houses and their residents evolve in these fascinating ways. The key to the house's survival was that it could be subdivided and rooms could be rented. Otherwise, it would have been abandoned for sure. Cities, if we freeze them in place, they're going to get into trouble. That's the lesson of Jane Jacobs. That's my lesson, too. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Howard, what are you optimistic about? I'm actually optimistic that there's more and more communities that are adopting less restrictive zoning. Minneapolis abolished single-family zoning. The thousands of volunteer Americans who make decisions will take in this idea that the physical environment influences our behavior and gives us different options about how to live. Let's have a comeback of the two-family house so people can afford to buy because they rent the upstairs out to somebody else. Common sense ideas that I hope local officials under pressure from the electorate will start to make better choices. That's the theme of my book, The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It, and I believe in it. Thanks to Barry and Howard for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Irv Gelman, who is a popular historian who has a new book entitled Campaign of the Century, Kennedy, Nixon, and the Election of 1960. Irv disagrees with the historical narrative about this incredibly close presidential race. There is much to discuss, including election fraud, JFK's mistresses, and the first television debates. Our second speaker will be Nicholas Eberstadt, who is the Henry Wendt Chair of Political Economy at the think tank AEI. Nick wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week on the significance of North Korea's expanding missile program and what does it mean for the safety of the U.S. mainland and its South Korean neighbors. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you just read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.